Well, good morning, church. It is always my joy to uh, have the privilege to, to, to bring you God's word. And uh, in a moment, we're going to open up God's word. We're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter four. Uh, but before we do so, before we jump into God's word, I want to start by asking you a question. And, and we've talked about uh, this idea of joy uh, this morning. And I want to ask you, what gives you the greatest joy in life? What gives you the greatest joy? So perhaps when you hear that question and when you hear that word joy, you're thinking, okay, you're, you're thinking of happiness. Okay, so you're just asking what, what makes me happy? And that is part of what that word joy means. But I, I want to give you a little bit more uh, of an idea of what I mean when I use that word joy. So here are some other questions to ask to, to help us define that word joy. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you most look forward to every day, every hour, every minute? What thing, what person, what desire gets most of your attention, most of your affection, most of your allegiance? And is there anything in your life that if everything else around me fails, this one thing that stands makes my life worth living? Or... If this one joy of mine fails, well, then my life just seems meaningless. That's what I mean by the word joy. And so when we ask that question, what's your greatest joy in your life? This this actually might be the most relevant, most important question that we could ask about ourselves. Because the thing that is our greatest joy, that says a lot about who we are. That says a lot about what our life is going to be all about. It says a lot about what we'll do when that joy is threatened. Well, this new year, New Year's is always a time when we uh, tend to sit back and we reflect on these kinds of questions. We reflect on our lives. We look back on the previous year, and it's like we're looking at the, the game film. We're going, okay, what, what went right? What went wrong? How can we adjust and make things better for this next year? So I think maybe as we think about these questions of, the new year, what our life is going to be about and what we're going to do for this new year, how we're going to make this new year better than the last. I think the best place to start is by looking at our joys. And I think one of the things that, that, that we can best do to answer this question is to look at God's word. God's word is the best place to help us to consider these questions, to reflect on uh, these very questions. So if you have your Bibles with me, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like like you to turn with me to Philippians chapter four. If you're using the Bibles provided uh, in the pews, that's going to be on page nine hundred ninety two. Sorry, nine hundred eighty two. And, you know, if you don't have a a copy of the word of God, uh, we'd love for you to take that little black Bible with you. That that is our gift to you. Uh, We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word that you can read and understand on your own. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, and today we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. So Philippians 4, 4 through 9, and this is God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. So as we read this small portion of God's word, I think it's important before we jump into looking at the, the, the words and the phrases and, and figuring out what, what it means. The first thing we need to do is to figure out the context. Okay, what's happening in this book of scripture, this, this letter that we have in, in the Bible, so that, you know, once we understand what's happening in the, in the letter as a whole, I think that's going to help us to understand specifically what's happening in this passage. Uh, so the first thing we need to understand is who wrote it. Well, the, the person who wrote this book is the Apostle Paul. So if you've read any of the New Testament, uh, you, you know, a lot of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. And this was a man who uh, he was once a Pharisee. He was a, a conservative Jew who was against the message of Jesus. And then he met the Lord Jesus. OK, he was on his way to persecute some Christians to, to round him up, throw him into jail. And he met the Lord Jesus and he became aware of the fact that he was a sinner in need of salvation. And he found that salvation in Jesus Christ. And so here's this Apostle Paul years after that event, decades after that event, and he's writing to a church in, in a city called Philippi. And the Apostle Paul helped to, to found this church. He helped to plant this church, and he's writing to them years later. And he actually tells us in the letter what his purpose is. Okay, what is his purpose for writing to the Philippians? So in, uh, in, in chapter 4, uh, this chapter that we're reading, down in verse 14, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So one of Paul's primary purposes for writing this letter to the uh, Philippian church is to, to thank them, to thank them for providing him with some material support as he's traveling around to these different cities, preaching the gospel, preaching the message of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, uh, the, the Philippians have helped him along in his journey. He's, they, they've, they've helped him uh, to, to you know, have the, the means to preach the, this gospel message. Uh, and, but then another thing that Paul says as he's writing to this uh, Philippian church back in uh, chapter one of this letter, he mentions this, this man named Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is a man who is actually from this church in, in Philippi. And he's actually the, the Philippians have actually sent them to meet Paul and to give them a gift to, to, to give Paul a gift. And he's writing them to say, hey, listen, uh, Epaphroditus, this man Epaphroditus has come to me. Uh, he got sick. You all heard that he was sick. And so uh, he, he understands that you're worried about him. He understands that you're worried about the fact that he got sick and that he almost died. So I'm actually sending him back to you. I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you in order that uh, you, will, you will see that he's fine, he's well, and that we're, we will all be less anxious. So already you're seeing uh, in, the, in what Paul is writing that there's a, there's a message of uh, anxiety, there's worry, there, there's things going on in the Philippian church that Paul wants to kind of put aside. He wants to put to, to rest some of their worry, uh, and that's part of his purpose in sending this letter. But what we find in verse two, or chapter 2 uh, is really the main purpose, the heart of why Paul writes to the Philippian church. Here's why he writes to the church. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole praetorium or imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
What Paul is saying there, and what we know from reading elsewhere in Scripture, is that he's, he's in prison. He's, he's under house arrest, and we, and we believe, based on this context, that it's in Rome. That he's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting what's almost certainly going to be execution at the hands of, of the Roman Empire for the sedition of preaching the gospel. It's, it's considered uh, seditious speech uh, in the Roman Empire at that time. So here is Paul. He's in prison. He's in chains, and he's writing to the Philippian church to let them know that the gospel is going forth even in the midst of his own persecution. So why is Paul writing to the Philippian church? Well, Paul wants the church to know that uh, what, what they most need to do is to maintain their faithfulness to the gospel, or sorry, maintain their faithfulness to Christ through the gospel, and they need to maintain their love for one another as a covenant family. In, verse, in chapter 1, he says, It is my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. See, what Paul is talking about there when he talks about love abounding, he's talking about vertical love and horizontal love. Our, our love for God, our love for the Lord, and our love for one another. And all of that is accomplished through this gospel that's, that, that the church is proclaiming. And throughout the letter, as Paul is preaching this message, he has one refrain that he says over and over and over again. He says, rejoice. Philippians, I want you to rejoice. I'm rejoicing. I want you to rejoice with me. Paul uses the word rejoice and joy 16 times in this epistle. 16 times in this letter, he talks about rejoicing or joy. What does Paul want the Philippian church to rejoice in? Well, there's three things. Number one, Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the spread of the gospel, even despite hardship and difficulties. Secondly, Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the unity that they can enjoy as the people of God. Rejoicing in unity. And thirdly, Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the coming of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And the coming of, of Christ's kingdom. So we actually see all three of those themes in our passage today, those verses four through nine. There's only a few verses that we're going to look at today. We see all three of those themes of rejoicing, rejoicing in the spread of the gospel, rejoicing in unity and rejoicing in the coming kingdom of Jesus. But here's what we want to focus on today in our, our verses uh, four through nine. I think there's two main points that we're going to look at today that we see in our passage. Number one, there's priority number one, finding joy in God's presence. So that's verses four through seven. And priority number two, finding joy in God's praise. That's verses eight and nine. So brothers and sisters, I, I could preach all day on, on the whole book of Philippians, uh, but I won't do that. Or, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, we're taking the Lord's Supper uh, later today and it might actually become a supper if I'm here all day preaching on Philippians. But we're going to jump into our verses with this first point. Priority number one, the joy or finding joy in God's presence. And the main point that we get out of this is that God is with us and God is for us. He's with us and he's for us. So let's look at verse four. This is Paul speaking to the Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I love this. He says, again, I will say rejoice. So Paul, Paul has to repeat himself. He says, rejoice. And he says, again, I'll say rejoice. 
Why is he repeating himself? Well, I think that repetition is just to emphasize that this is, this is the most important thing you can do. This is the most important posture that you, that you can have. The most important attitude that you can have is rejoicing. And so I, I want you to make sure that I want to make sure that you, you don't miss this. You need to rejoice in everything that you do. He says rejoice in the, in the Lord always. Well, we might ask, OK, well, well, what does Paul want the Philippians to rejoice in? What, what, what do they have to rejoice in? Well, let's look at the context here. Uh, you know, let's back up a little bit uh, to uh, a couple of verses before that. Let's look at verses two and three. This is Paul speaking just a, a moment earlier. He says, I entreat you, Odia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So you're saying, well, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound like that's, those are grounds for rejoicing. Okay, so Paul is just saying here, hey, there's, there's two ladies in the church who are fighting. And he doesn't tell us what it's about, but apparently it's bad enough that Paul, who's all the way in Rome, has heard about it. It's gotten to him that, hey, these two, these two ladies are, are arguing pretty, pretty badly. And so he's writing to them saying, hey, guys, you need to come together. You need to agree in the Lord, he says. And then he says, I ask you also, true companion. Again, we don't know who this true companion is. But he says, help these women. Help these women who labor side by side with me. And so really by extension here, we can say, okay, well, even if we don't know who that individual is, what he's really doing is he's asking the church, he's picking out individuals in the church and, you know, the church as a whole to say, hey, come together and help these, these two individuals work out their disagreement. And these are two beloved saints, by the way. These are two women who have labored in the gospel. So it's not as if, you know, these are, these are just, you know, fringe people who, you know, they, they, we don't even know if they're, if they're believers we would assume that these are two pillars of the church. If, they have, if they're known for their labors in the gospel and the spread of the gospel, these are two uh, you know, members of the church in good standing who are arguing. So why is that reason for the Philippian church to rejoice? What are they to rejoice about? Well, in verse 4, Paul says, well, rejoice in the Lord. See, the Lord is the, the object in the source of, of the rejoicing is not in the circumstances. In fact, the circumstances are pretty bad in Philippians, uh, in, in the Philippian church, at least as far as the, the, the unity is concerned. Back in chapter two, Paul has this long section where he talks about unity and, and, and giving up our rights and our privileges to put others before our, our, ourselves. I would assume, especially based on this, that that might be somewhat of a, correct, a corrective uh, teaching to the Philippian church. But yet he says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on in verse five. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So this word reasonableness in, in some other translations, uh, you know, some other Bibles uh, translated as graciousness and some translated as a forbearing spirit. I love those two translations because I think it really does get to the heart of, of that word that Paul's using here. Uh, reasonableness. He's saying you need to. Uh, to, to be gracious to one another. You need to be patient with one another. So in the midst of uh, this uh, conflict that's going on w w within the Philippian church, he tells them, one thing you need to do is to rejoice in the Lord. That's the main thing you need to do. Okay, find your joy in, in Jesus. And then with that, because of that, 
Be gracious to one another. Be patient to one another. See, a disagreement between Christians, as far as Paul can see it, is, is, is really an opportunity to display the glory of Jesus by our patience. To display the glory of Jesus by the way that we treat one another, even when we, when we, when we disagree. So, maybe you feel this morning that this is kind of what we're dealing with in the church. Within this church, within, amongst Christians as a whole... Maybe you're seeing a lot of disagreements, a lot of sharp disagreements when it comes to some important things, you know, convictions, matters of of, uh, deeply held conscience. And then maybe some other frivolous things. There's just we're we're not agreeing. And it's hard. It's hard to to feel that that tension, to feel that uh, personal attack when somebody says, I think you're wrong. And that's a problem for me because that, that puts our relationship at jeopardy now because I think you're wrong in this very important thing. And how are we going to coexist with one another? Well, Paul is, is telling the Philippian church here, well, our common joy together is the Lord. And because of that, you need to treat one another with grace and with patience. You don't need me to tell you that during this past year, we've, we've been living in a, a tough season. Okay? There's been a lot of sickness and death. There's been plans canceled or delayed. There's been political upheaval. There's been strained relationships. There's just been a lot of uncertainty. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, if on the one hand you're trusting social media or cable news to tell you how to react to that, well, I think probably the, the message you're going to get is, well, hey, double down, man. Like, stand on your right. Stand on, on the things that you think that you deserve, the, th- the things that you think that you are correct on. And other people who disagree, well, they're, they're idiots. You know? We're told by the world to respond in anger and hostility toward those who think differently than we do or have a a different uh, set of priorities than we do. And yet, what do we see here? Paul gives us a better way. He gives us a better way. He says, your joy is not in those ancillary things. Sure, those things that you believe and that you hold dear may be good, may be important, may be true. You might even be right. But what's more, what, what's more important is that you're not finding your joy in these things. You're finding your joy and your hope in Jesus. And what's, what's more important than, than loving those things or those ideas or those beliefs that you, you, you hold dear is that you love one another. So here's a goal for 2022. As a church, let this be one of our goals is that we need to continue to learn how to disagree with one another, how to disagree with one another and keep loving one another. We need to learn how to disagree with one another and keep loving one another. Now, as I've, as I've thought about this and as I've meditated on this uh, throughout the week, I, I've just thought of a lot of just encouraging things about this church. I'm, I'm just so encouraged, especially in the season that we're living with, uh, that, that, we're, that we've been living through, um, knowing that there are a variety of different opinions, a variety of different perspectives on, you know, on you name it. 
you know, how, how we handle this or that. And yet I've seen this church love one another so well. I've seen people put aside their, their preferences and, and prioritize loving others, prioritize the needs of others. I've, I've seen that in so many ways. I mean, if we went around the room, uh, you know, I'm sure so many of you could, could give testimony to that yourselves. And so as I'm preaching this, number one, I'm preaching it to myself. Um, but I'm also preaching it in terms of just by way of reminder, because I'm, I'm so encouraged as I think about what this church has has done uh, to obey the Lord in loving, loving Jesus and loving one another. I'm also reminded of our church covenant. There's a, the, a line in our church covenant that says we will show perfect courtesy toward all. Speaking the truth in love to one another and avoiding quarrels and slander and gossip. Again, I'm encouraged by this church as I, as I read that and just think of all the ways that, um, that we've seen that fruit born in the life of our church. And yet I'm also convicted. I'm convicted in my own heart. And I'm convicted uh, of, about ways that we as a church together can grow and can, can uh, grow into loving the Lord and loving one another, even in the midst of, of these difficulties. The question we want to ask ourselves is, what will our church be known for in this regard? Will we be viewed as a church that is just homogenous in every way? We think alike in every single way. Everybody has the same politics, the same outlook on every, every aspect of life. Will we be known as a church who disagrees and has a lot of conflict over it and people can never just get along with one another? Or will we be a church that is different in all of these different ways and yet we have unity in Christ? We're able to rejoice in the Lord and we're able to deal with one another in a reasonable, gentle, forbearing way. Brothers and sisters, that's that's the kind of church that we need to be. And we need help, don't we? We can't do that on our own. And when the Apostle Paul is, is speaking to the Philippians and he gives them this command, he also knows that they need help. Paul knows that they need help. So what does he do? He shows them where to get the help. He shows them where to get help. So looking back now at, at, at verse 5, he says to the Philippians at the end of verse 5, The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. See, what Paul is doing is he's not only reminding the Philippians that, okay, this is the life that you need to live before God, but he's telling them, he's, he's, he's reminding the Philippians, everything that God has demanded of you, God has provided for you in himself, in his son Jesus, in, in the spirit that indwells in us. But specifically here, he, he says, okay, the Lord is near, not just in... in in abstract kind of sense, but we have a God that we can go to in prayer. 
at this at this point in time, when when, when Paul is writing to the Philippians, uh, it, you know, again, it's important for us to uh, remember the historical context the, uh, in which Paul is, is living in. Uh, Two prevalent ideas of God were that, on the one hand, uh, God is just a, a, an abstract code of ethics, okay? It's just a, a moral code, and, you know, we call that God, but really it's just a list of these are the ways that you need to live. And so if you're following these rules, this code of ethics, then, you know, hey, you can call that God if you want, but that's, you know, that's how you, you know, achieve spiritual enlightenment. And then on the other hand, you know, there are some who believe that, you know, God was just some mystical force. So he's not an external code of ethics, but it's a mystical force that, that lives in, in, inside of us. And, you know, maybe we can, uh, uh, you know, think good thoughts and we can, um, we, we, we can uh, pray to this, to, 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 to this God. But really, it's, it's just, it's not really a, a personal being. It's just a mystical force that we call God. But what Paul tells us is that God is, is the all-powerful, all-wise creator who has pledged himself to us as our father. And he loves us intimately. And so how does God love his children? Well, he gives us unfettered access to him. That's what we see there in, in verse 6. Um, we, we, he gives us unfettered access to, to himself in prayer. Paul sets before the Philippians really two ways to live. On the one, one way to live is the way of anxiety, okay? Uh, there, there's a way that we can rely on our own wisdom. We can rely on our own labors, our own skills, maybe on some lucky breaks. And that's actually going to lead to anxiety, all right? And as you, again, we're not going to read through the, the, the rest of the letter of Philippians, but uh, I, I encourage you to do that this afternoon because you'll see uh, the Philippians actually had plenty of reasons to be anxious, okay? They had plenty of reasons from the persecutions that they uh, saw Paul suffering and that they themselves were suffering. Uh, we talked about Epaphroditus, this man that they, they, that they loved who had been sick and almost died, and, and Paul talks about the fact that they were anxious uh, about about Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus himself was anxious because they were anxious, and Paul wanted to be less anxious, and so that's why he was uh, writing to the Philippians, and, uh, you know, there's just a lot of anxiety, and yet Paul says, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, but I'm going to show you the way that leads to peace. He says, relying on God in prayer, we rely on God to save us, and equip us and sustain us. And not only that, but Paul actually shows us, in a way, how, how prayer works. What do we do when we pray? Well, uh, he talks about, he uses these words supplication and, and thanksgiving. And, you know, what these words tell us is that prayer is our expression of our neediness and God's all-sufficiency. Our neediness and God's all-sufficiency. And ultimately, that points to God's glory, the fact that God is the one who we depend on. He doesn't depend on us, but we depend on him. And so that's what we do when we pray. When we gather together as a church, oftentimes we try to pray in a variety of different ways. I'm not sure you've heard of a sort of model of prayer called the ACTS model, A-C-T-S, but that's one of the things that Together as a church, we try to do. We, we try to pray in ways that adore our, our God. We worship our God. We confess our sins to God. We thank our God. And then 
The S is supplication. We ask God for what we need. And in all of these ways, we're showing our dependence on God. We're showing that we don't have everything in ourselves that we need. But we go to God because he's the one who provides for us. So a question for you is, are you you anxious today? Are you anxious? Maybe you are. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you find yourself just kind of limping into, into 2022. Just kind of just limping through, just kind of asking yourself, all right, what's next? What, what's next? Well, Paul gives us a simple response here. He says, take it to God. Take that anxiety to God. Elsewhere, the apostle Peter, uh, he's writing a letter to some Christians, and he says these words. He says, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what can we expect? What can we expect when we rely on God? Well, Paul says it right here in, uh, in, in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. So on the one hand, he says, Do not be anxious. But go to God. And so when, you, when, we, when we go to God in prayer, the anxiety that we once had is swept away and replaced with peace. But what kind of peace? Well, I would argue, based on what Paul has already told these Philippians, that it's, it's both a vertical peace and a horizontal peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. We, we need both. We are sorely in need of both peace with God and peace with others. God who has created this universe to display his own glory, to reflect and radiate his, his own glory. He's created us to be in relationship with him. He's created us as those who should bear his image and to display his glory in the way that we live before him and worshiping him and the way that we treat each other. And yet we failed to do that. We've talked about the fact that, you know, we love ourselves. We love our own preferences. We love to uh, demand respect and honoring of the, the things that we feel or know to be right. And what God tells us is that that doesn't honor him at all. We honor ourselves, and by doing so, we dishonor God. We fail to do what he's created us to do. We have failed. And God, because he loves us, he has sent Jesus into the world, who is the only person in the world ever to live a perfect life. Where where all the ways that we failed, all the ways that we disobeyed, Jesus succeeded. And he honored the Father. He himself showed that he was the embodiment, the very embodiment of the law. God's law, everything that God says is right. That was Jesus. And not only that, he died. He took the punishment that we deserve. The the curse that we deserved. He took that when he died on the cross. And three days after that, he rose from the dead. He rose to show that God 
accepted his sacrifice and accepted him as the son of God, his, his holy son of God, the, the righteous one, the, the promised king who would sit on the, the throne of David forever. This one who would himself be the very center and the very source of all goodness and all life for us. And the way we receive this gift that God has given us, the way that we receive uh, this righteousness is by believing in Jesus. See, God said that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. All the wrongs you've done, all the ways that you failed, you will be forgiven if you believe in this Jesus who is living and died and risen again for you. God sent him for, for that purpose, for us. And so he's calling all who live on this earth, all who hear this message to put down our own living for ourselves and to believe in Jesus, to humble ourselves and to trust in Jesus alone. So if you're here this morning and you don't think of yourself as a Christian or maybe you don't uh, you hear this message and you don't know yourself to believe that. Well, this is what we mean when we use the word gospel. You know, we've used the word gospel a lot today. This is what we mean. This message that, 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 that I've just explained, that's the gospel. And that gospel is for you. And I believe that the fact that you're here today listening to me tell you that gospel in whatever uh, feeble words that I'm using to preach that gospel to you, I believe that that's God's grace to you to be here today, to hear that. And so would you humble yourself today and trust in Jesus and receive the, the peace and the healing that he promises vertically and horizontally? Receive that today by believing in Jesus. And for those of you brothers and sisters who are Christians, rest in Jesus today. Rest in him. We're just so tempted, even, even those of us who have already believed in this message, who, who know ourselves to uh, be the, the beneficiaries of, of the Savior. There's so many ways that we're tempted to continue to rely on ourselves, to continue to, to work for our own salvation, to continue to, um, to put our own trust in ourselves. But God wants you to rest in the Savior this morning. And not only that, when you do rest in him, we'll walk in a renewed life, a renewed life. The things that maybe you were once addicted to, it might be a struggle, but those things don't hold you as a slave anymore. You are not a slave to those things. You're not a slave to besetting sins you're not a slave to relational conflict. But God says you can have freedom today through the gospel. So in our first point here, Paul has taught us about finding joy in God's presence. But he's not done there. He's going to give us yet another thing to, to do and another thing to receive, another promise to receive. And that's going to be our second point and more briefly Priority number two, finding joy in God's praise. Finding joy in God's praise. So here in verse eight, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So with our understanding of who God is, we respond by giving him our attention, giving him our affection, and giving him our allegiance, okay? Our attention, our affection, our allegiance. And so Paul uh, tells us a couple of things here. Number one, he's going to tell us, okay, so what are the things that we need to fill our minds with? What are the things that we need to fill our minds with? So here in verse 8. He, he, he tells us, okay, things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely and commendable, excellence and, and worthy of praise. So when you look at that list of, of, of items there that we're supposed to fill our minds with those things, well, what does that remind you of? Or maybe better yet, who does that remind you of? Well, I think it's ultimately about Jesus. We are to fill our minds with thoughts of Jesus, our Savior, our King. Because as you go down the list and you, you think, okay, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, that's Jesus. That's the one who's come and he, you know, as I said you know, a few minutes ago, he's the embodiment of the law. So these are all words that uh, God elsewhere in, in his word, these words are used to describe God himself, used to describe his law, used to describe those who follow his law. And what we know is that Jesus is the embodiment of all those things. He is all of those things in perfection. And so I think what what the Apostle Paul is getting at here for the Philippians is, I want you to fill your minds with your Savior, thoughts of your Savior, who he has been for you up to this point, who he continues to be, and what he's going to do for you, the coming kingdom of Jesus. Elsewhere, you know, and, and this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, let alone uh, the letter, you know, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior. We await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So that is, that is a breathtaking promise. It's a breathtaking promise. We are going to be raised with Jesus, and we're going to have new bodies, and we're going to have new lives, and it's going to be a new creation, a completely new creation in which the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of Christ. And there will be no more sin. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more strife. It's just going to be every knee bowed to the king. That's amazing. And that's what, that's what Paul wants for the Philippians. That's what God wants for us. This church. That's what he wants for all of us who believe and follow the Messiah. So this world that we live in is filled with false hopes and false saviors that compete for our hearts and our minds. The way John Calvin put it, he says, you know, our our hearts are like idle factories, idle factories. We, We invent things to worship that are not God, but we invent things to to put our hope in. And to, to put our trust in and to love and to spend our time thinking about and to spend our time pursuing. And yet, the Christian's challenge here is to, to saturate our minds and our hearts with thoughts of God. Thoughts of our Savior. Such that there's, there's no room for idols. There's no more room. 
That those things are, are pushed out because, you know, we spend our time just thinking about, about our Savior and thinking about how to please him and thinking about how to live our lives in such a way that these things are true of us. Not because of ourselves, but be, because of, of what he's done for us. And so just think about that. The, the things that you daydream about, that says a lot about you. I think another challenge for 2022 is to, to daydream about Jesus. To dream about Jesus and to, to think about who he is, who he has been for you, and, and what's coming. Who he will be for you and what he's promised to you on the last day. So how? How does this work? How do we, how do we fill our minds with, with those things? Well, a few things. Uh, we talk, I, I, you may have heard of this term, the means of grace. Well, you know, I think a very simple way to, to, to think about, okay, how do we saturate ourselves with thoughts of God is by the simple means of grace, by God's word, by prayer, and by fellowship. And that's exactly what we do here when we meet together as a church on, on Sunday mornings. We spend time uh, in God's word, what we're doing right now. Uh, we spend time praying together and just being in a room together and spending time singing with one another and talking with one another before and after the church, encouraging one another uh, before and after the service. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And in all those ways, we are saturating ourselves with, with, with God. We're saturating ourselves with Christ. So lastly, as Paul gives this instruction to the Philippians, he wants them to follow examples. He says, okay, I want to give you examples to follow here. And so what does Paul say here? Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul reminds the Philippian church to, to follow his example. So... What is, what is Paul getting at there when, when, he's, when they're supposed to follow his example? In what way should they follow him? Well, I think there's three things that Paul has in mind when he you know, instructs the Philippians, when he encourages the Philippians to follow his example. Number one, he wants them to keep the gospel the main thing. Okay? We can see in Paul's ministry, not only here in Philippians but elsewhere in the New Testament, that Paul is all about some gospel. Okay? He lives and breathes and eats and sleeps the gospel. Like, he's all about the gospel. So he's saying, hey, Philippian church, be about the gospel in everything, okay? Number two, don't look at suffering as an obstacle to the gospel, okay? Don't look at suffering as an obstacle to the gospel going forth. Uh, really, we should embrace suffering for the sake of Jesus. We should embrace suffering. And, and you know, as we talked about it before— Paul's own suffering has resulted in more gospel proclamation, more people hearing the gospel because he's in chains, you know, talking about Jesus, singing about Jesus. And so that's the attitude that we need to have is to think of suffering not as an obstacle, but as something to be embraced for the sake of, of Christ and the advance of the message of Jesus. And then thirdly, we, want, we need to work hard to maintain unity with other Christians. We need to work hard to maintain unity with other Christians. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy work to do that. But we need to, we need to work at it. We need to work at it. And so with that in mind, I have two very brief, two very brief points of application for us to, to close our time. So firstly, number one, we talk about working hard for the, for the sake of unity uh, with other Christians. So the question I have for you is, what will it look like for you to actively and consistently pursue gospel-rooted unity with other Christians this year. Okay, so what's that going to look like? What steps do you need to take 
What conversations do you need to initiate? How does, how does your own attitude need to change? Is there anywhere, is it anywhere where you need to repent? Is there anywhere where you need to forgive? You know, so not only individually, but what's this going to look like as a church for us to actively and consistently do the work of pursuing gospel unity in our church? So how can we do this together? Okay, how can we pursue unity together? How can we as leaders, how can we as the elders, how can we help the church? How can we lead better in doing that? Okay, let's, let's not be afraid to have those conversations. Let's not be scared of one another. Let's not be mean to one another. Okay, let's not be content to hold one another at arm's length. But let's love one another like family. So what's that going to look like in, in 2022? And second question I have. What will it look like for you to grow in daily dependence on God through his word and through prayer? So what's that going to look like? So, you know, God has given us his word uh, in order to equip us to, to love him and to love each other. Okay? So how are we going to surround ourselves and fill ourselves with God's word? How are we going to consistently do that? Well, you know, a couple of suggestions I have for you. Number one, make a plan. Okay, so this is the part in the, in the New, Year's, uh, New Year's sermon where we talk about a, a Bible reading plan. But, you know, that, I think that's a really great way to make sure that we're, you know, that we're following through is to, to make some kind of plan. Whether it's a read through the Bible in a year plan or whether it's a, you know, okay, here are the specific books of the Bible that I want to, you know, take a, a few months, you know, each throughout the year and just hit these books hard or these, these, you know, these topics hard, whatever it is, but what, you know, make a plan, make a a plan that's manageable for you and that you can actually stick to and and build on, you know, build from there. You know, as far as scripture reading and prayer goes, set times every day, you know, don't just kind of wake up and just on a whim say, okay, hopefully today I'll find some time to read God's word. Wherever I can find it, I'll, I'll squeeze it in somewhere. No, Set some times, whether that's, whether that's getting up early or staying up late or, you know, doing it on your lunch break, wherever it is, find some time to, to read God's word. Find some time to pray. And I, I love finding time to pray out loud so where I can be alone and just talk to God verbally out loud. That actually helps me to, to, to focus myself in prayer. But find some ways to do that. There's plenty of resources available and the elders, we're, we're happy to help you out with that. So if you, if you need help, suggestions on how to do that. Uh, we're happy to help with that. But lastly, I think uh, one of the goals that doesn't come naturally for everybody, but it, it's still a very important uh, way to, to, to do these things. Find time to meet up with other Christians. Get together throughout the week, okay? So we, we can't do this by ourselves. And as I said, you know, when we, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we are, we're looking to fulfill... Uh, this goal, this goal of um, loving God and loving each other. But there's so much to be said about not just Sunday mornings, but doing life together with other Christians. OK, so what are you doing Monday through Saturday? Are, are you are you talking with other Christians? Are you meeting together to read God's word, and to pray, to encourage one another? OK, I, I think you should try to do that weekly. Try to do that daily if you can or however much you can do it. Uh, value that time with other Christians to do these things. So what we're doing here is we're not trying to create a, a, a legalistic checklist to sort of check off and say, hey, okay, 
I'm doing good because I'm doing these things. But really, these are just means to, to organize yourself, to look at that. what's that main goal, that main goal that Paul has here for the Philippians. And our main goal in life is to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord. Who will we be in 2022? Again, as we sit here and we're, we're grateful for the Lord's mercy and getting us to this point, and we look ahead to however, however long he has for us here in 2022, we pray, we, we desire most that Jesus would come back today, right? Amen? We pray that he would come back. But as long as he has us here, we want to ask ourselves, who will we be? What will mark us as a church? What will we trust God for? Brothers and sisters, I pray that you will find joy in loving God and loving each other. And that as we have this attitude of loving God and loving one another, that we would go forth and and, and proclaim the gospel and that that would be what marks us most as a church. So brothers and sisters, let's go ahead and, and pray. And then we will move on to taking the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for the grace that we have received in Jesus. You who have loved us by sending your son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for us and to rise to new life. Lord, you're not done with us. You're not done. You've sent this Jesus. You've given us your spirit. And you've told us that there's a coming day when our Messiah will return. And so we await that with joy. We await our Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Father, we just pray that in the meantime, as we await that day, however long that that will take. Father, we pray that you would uh, equip us to humble ourselves, to love you, to love one another, to eagerly embrace the, the challenges and, and even the, the struggles and the, the suffering that you have to, uh, to, to give to us. Not because we desire those things in and of themselves. We certainly don't. But we desire the, the glory that comes from displaying your all-sufficiency in our weakness. So, Father, we just pray that you would give us strength today. Give us renewed hope as we look ahead to 2022. And we ask that you would continue to mark us as a people who love you and are zealous for proclaiming the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.